Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, good morning, and we are back to Mackey. So Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, and today we're going to go through Chapter 51, Freemasonry Among the Anglo-Saxons. After the departure of the Roman legions and the withdrawal of the Roman protection, Britain, left to its own resources, was soon harassed by the attacks of Scots and Picts, by savage pirates from the opposite shores of the North Sea, and by civil troubles which were the natural result of the division of power among many rival, petty political groupings of the people. Among the Britons there was one leader, Gwothrin, or as he is more generally called, Vothgern, who seems to have assumed, if he did not legally possess it, a governing position over the other British princes. Feeling, after various unsuccessful attempts that he could not, by his unaided forces, repulse the invaders, he sought the assistance of the Saxons. The Saxons were a tribe of warlike sea kings who occupied the western shore of what has since been known as the Duchy of Holstein, with the neighboring islands on the coast. Brought across the sea by the invitation of the Britons, they soon expelled the Picts and Scots, but, attracted by the delights of the climate and the fertility of the soil, so superior to the bogs and swamps of their own limited and half-drowned territory, they remained to contest the possession of the island with its native inhabitants. Hence there followed a series of conflicts which led at last to the expulsion of the native Britons who were forced to retire to the southwestern parts of the island and allow the establishment of the Saxon control in England. During the period of local wars which led to this change, not only of a government but of a whole people, it is not to be supposed that much attention could have been paid to the cultivation of architecture or Freemasonry. Amid the clash of arms, the laws are silent, and learning and the arts lie prostrate. We are not to believe that all the influences of the preceding four or five centuries were wholly upset. Gildas, it is true, complains in fretful language and an involved style in the epistle which is added to his history of the wickedness both of the clergy and the laity. But the greatest excess does not altogether forbid the preservation of some remains of the architectural skill and taste which had been originally taught by the Roman artificers. The Saxons themselves were not a thoroughly barbarous people. The attempts to subdue the tribes of Germany as they had those of Spain, of Gaul, and of Britain were not very successful. The fierce bravery of the Germans under the leadership of the great Hermann, a name Romanized into Arminius by Tacitus, was able to stem the progress of the Roman legions in the interior of the country and to confine them at last to the possession of a few forts on the Rhine. The German tribes, among whom we are of course to count the Saxons, were thus able to retain their own manners, customs, and language, while their contact with the legions, both in war and in peace, must have given them some portion of Roman civilization. Many new ideas, feelings, reasoning, and habits, says Sharon Turner, must have resulted from this mixture, and the peculiar minds and views of the Germans must have been both excited and enlarged. 
The result of this union of German and Roman improvement was the gradual formation of that new species of the human character and society which has descended with increasing melioration to all the modern states of Europe. Dr. Anderson, when describing the Saxon inroads upon Britain, says that the Anglo-Saxons came over all rough, ignorant heathens, despising everything but war, nay, in hatred to the Britons and Romans, they demolished all accurate structures and all the remains of ancient learning, affecting only their own barbarous manner of life, till they became Christians. Entick and Northwick, in their later editions of the Book of Constitutions, have repeated this slander. Even if it were a truth, this claim could not have forever wiped out the connection which we are seeking to trace between the Freemasonry of the Roman colleges and that of England in the Middle Ages. Although it might have been held up by Saxon barbarism, it is easy to prove that it could have been renewed by later contact with the architects of France. Against this careless error of Anderson and his later editors, let us place the more accurate and better digested views of the historian of the Anglo-Saxons. Sharon Turner, when writing of the arrival of Hengist with his Saxon followers in England, says, quote, The Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain must therefore not be contemplated as a barbarization of the country. Our Saxon ancestors brought with them a superior domestic and moral character and the rudiments of new political, juridical, and intellectual blessings. An interval of slaughter and desolation unavoidably occurred before they established themselves and their new systems in the island. But when they had completed their conquest, they laid the foundations of that national constitution, of that internal polity, of those peculiar customs, of that female modesty, and of that vigor and direction of mind to which Great Britain owes the social progress which it has so eminently acquired. The fact is that, though the Saxons introduced a style of their own to which writers on architecture have given their name, they borrowed in their practice of the art the suggestions left by the Romans in their buildings and used the materials of which these structures were composed. Thus a writer on this subject says that the Saxons appear to have formed for themselves a tolerably regular and rude style, something midway between the native and the Roman in its details. Paley credits this to the buildings left by the Romans in the country, which, though not numerous, must have been really notable in number and quality long after their departure from the island. Abundant evidence will be shown in the course of our studies that there was not a total separation or breaking off of Saxon architecture and Masonic methods of associated labor from that which was first introduced to Britain by the architects of the Roman colleges. There were, of course, some changes to be credited partly to a want of experienced skill, partly to the suggestions of the new ideas, and partly to the influence of novel religious relations. The temple, for instance, of the Romans had to be converted into the Church of the Christians, But the Roman Basilica, or Hall of Justice, was the model of the Saxon church, and the Roman architect was closely imitated, as well as he could be, by his Saxon successor. The spirit and the influence and the custom of the Roman college was not lost or even laid aside. Scarcely more than a century elapsed between the arrival of the Saxons and the complete conquest of the country. That space of time is to be divided among the briefer periods required for the continued successes of the several chieftains. Thus it took Hengist only eight years after his first coming to firmly establish himself in the kingdom of Kent. Only forty years after founding of the Saxon Octarchy, or Eight Kingdoms, Pope Gregory sent St. Augustine from Rome with missionaries to convert the Saxons to the faith of Christianity. During all this interval, many Roman buildings had existed in England, which, from their size and skill of construction, must have become models familiar to the Saxons. 
The temples of the Saxon idols had been built of wood, and as Gregory permitted them to be converted into Christian places of worship, the Saxon churches at first were almost all of that material. There was a deficiency of better materials. But we find an effort to use them whenever they could be obtained, so that a kind of construction called stone carpentry prevailed, in which we find a wood design to be carried out with stone materials. In not much later times, and long before the Norman conquest or the introduction of Gothic architecture, the Saxons built their churches, monasteries, and other public edifices entirely of stone. Although it may be admitted that the pagan Saxons on their first arrival did indeed destroy many of the churches which had been erected by the British Christians and expelled the priests, yet it must be remembered that on the later coming of Augustine from Rome, a new life was restored to architecture and the arts. As Paley says, the frequent missions and pilgrimages to Rome, together with the importation of Italian churchmen, which took place as early as the end of the 7th century, must have exercised great influence upon ecclesiastical architecture in England. We shall see hereafter that the Saxons repeatedly resorted to the aid of foreign workmen from Rome or from Gaul in the construction of their churches. The influences of the Roman system, derived in former times from the Roman colleges, continued at frequent intervals to be renewed, and the link of connection was thus kept unbroken. The principal difference between the works of the Roman and the Saxon architects has been supposed to be that the former built in stone and the latter in wood. If this were true, it is evident that all inquiry into the nature of Saxon architecture must be at an end, for as the wooden edifices must have long since perished, all the remains of stone structures which have been dug up in England will have to be credited to the age of the Roman control before the invasion of the Saxons, or to that which succeeded the conquest by the Normans. The perishable fabrics of timber erected by the Saxons would have left no traces behind. The mistaken opinion that the Saxons built all their churches of timber was first advanced by Stowe in his survey of London, and afterwards by William Somner in his Antiquities of Canterbury, who says that, quote, before the Norman advent, most of our monasteries and church buildings were of wood, end quote, and he asserts that upon the Norman conquest, these fabrics of timber grew out of use and gave place to stone buildings raised upon arches. The Reverend J. Bentham, in his History of the Cathedral Church of Ely, has upset the correctness of this view with unanswerable arguments. He has shown that although there were some cases of wooden edifices, yet that the Saxon churches were generally built of stone, with pillars, arches, and sometimes vaultings of the same material. Bentham adds the following remarks, which are important in the present connection, as showing that the Roman influence continued to be felt in the Saxon times, and thus that the chain which we are tracing remained unbroken. Quote, there is great probability that at the time the Saxons were converted, the art of constructing arches and vaultings and supporting stone edifices by columns was well known among them. They had many instances of such kind of buildings before them in the churches and other public edifices erected in the times of the Romans. For, notwithstanding the havoc that had been made of the Christian churches by the Picts and the Scots and by the Saxons themselves, some of them were then in being. Bede mentions two in the city of Canterbury. Besides these two ancient Roman churches, it is likely that there were others in the same age in different parts of the kingdom, which were then repaired and restored to their former use. Of the two Roman churches for whose existence Bentham refers to the authority of Bede, that ancient historian says, there was on the east side of the city a church dedicated to the honor of St. Martin, built while the Romans were still in the island, wherein the queen, who as has been said before, was a Christian, used to pray and of the other, that Augustine recovered in the royal city a church which he was informed had been built by the ancient Roman Christians and consecrated it to our Savior. 
In an article on Anglo-Saxon architecture published in the Archaeological Journal for March 1844, Thomas Wright, no mean authority on antiquarian science, has, like Bentham, successfully combated the doctrine that all the Saxon churches were wooden. I think, he says, the notion Anglo-Saxon churches were all built of wood will now hardly find supporters. He admits, which none will deny, that there were structures of this kind. A few wooden churches are mentioned in the Domesday Book, and we learn from other authorities that there were some others. But he contends that a careful perusal of the early chroniclers would afford ample proof that churches were not only abundant among the Anglo-Saxons, but that they were far from being always mean structures. Speaking of the Saxon churches, which Ordericus Vitalis tells us were repaired by the Normans immediately after the conquest, he remarks that, if they had been mean structures and in need of repairs, it is more probable that the Normans would have built new ones. The conclusions to be drawn from Wright's article are that while there were undoubtedly some wooden structures, just as there are in this day, the Anglo-Saxons built many churches and built them sumptuously of stone and in the Roman manner. The Reverend Richard Hart is therefore right when he says, on the authority of the architect Rookman, that in the construction of their churches, the Anglo-Saxons imitated Roman models, as might naturally be expected considering that Rome was the source from which their Christianity had been derived. The birthplace of many of their prelates and clergy, and at that period the very focus of learning and civilization. We may concede that during the comparatively brief period that was spent by the Saxons after their arrival in Britain until they obtained complete possession of the country, the local wars between them and the natives must have had the effect of halting the pursuit of architecture. But it has been shown that this stop did not altogether wipe out the influence of the Roman builders who had been put into effect their methods of building when the island was a province of the empire. We have also seen that the destruction by the Saxons of the Christian churches, which had been built by the Roman architects, was not so thorough or so universal as has been supposed by some writers, and that they did not, as Northwick, adding to the language of Anderson, says, root out all the seeds of learning and the arts that the Romans had planted in Britain. On the contrary, we have the evidence of the Venerable Bede and the repeated testimony of modern researches that there were at the time of the Saxon conversion of Christianity at least two Roman churches standing which might serve as models for the Saxon Freemasons and many remains of Roman buildings affording materials for new structures. Now, after the conversion, we find the chain connecting Roman Freemasonry with that pursued by the Saxons renewed and strengthened not only by these models, but by the direct influence of the leaders of religious work who were sent from Rome, and who brought with them or sent for workmen to Rome and Gaul, who might carry out more Romano in the Roman manner, their designs in the building of churches and monasteries. Butler, in his Lives of the Saints, a work, however, in which we must not place entire confidence, says that on the settlement of Augustine in Britain, at the close of the 6th century, when Ethelbert the king had been converted, and the people generally were accepting the new religion, the princes and nobles were very zealous in building and endowing churches and religious houses. Many of them, he says, traveled to Rome and other foreign parts to improve themselves in the sacred sciences. That there was at that time a constant contact between Rome and Britain is evident from the frequent epistles from Gregory the Pontiff to Augustine and to King Ethelbert. Missionaries were also sent to Britain to assist Augustine in his pious work and it is not at all improbable that Freemasons came with them from Rome or from Gaul to be employed in the construction of churches and monasteries, with which the land was being rapidly filled. We have more to rely on than mere supposition. 
There are ample records showing that workmen were imported from abroad for the purpose of building, and that thus the Roman method was renewed in the island. Anderson is not therefore strictly correct when he says that the Anglo-Saxons, quote, affecting to build churches and monasteries, palaces and fine mansions, too late lamented the ignorant and destructive conduct of their fathers, but knew not how to repair the public loss of old architecture, end quote. We have shown that there were some models of Roman buildings still remaining, and there was no ignorance of the need of obtaining workmen from Rome or Gaul, and no want of opportunity to obtain them. He is, therefore, more historically right when he adds, though it does not agree with his former assertion, that these works required many masons who soon formed themselves into societies or lodges by direction of foreigners who came over to help them. In the year 627, Edwin, king of Northumbria, who had been converted by Paulinius, one of the missionaries of Augustine, was baptized at the city of York, the capital of his kingdom. While receiving the necessary religious instructions, he built a temporary church of timber in which the sacrament of baptism might be administered. But immediately afterward, under the direction of Bishop Paulinius, he caused the foundation to be laid of a larger and nobler church of stone, which, although begun at once, was not finished until after his death by a successor, Oswald. Bede, in telling of the event, says nothing of any foreign aid that had been asked or received in its construction. However, it is evident from the facts that the church was built of stone and in a square form, like a Roman basilica. These particulars would imply the necessity of Roman Freemasons or of other foreigners familiar with Roman methods to carry out the work. In the gathering of foreign Freemasons at York to erect St. Peter's Church under the protection and favor of King Edwin is supposed by modern Masonic writers to be the meeting incorrectly referred to in the legend of the craft as an assembly held at York under the patronage of Prince Edwin, the son of Athelstan, 300 years afterwards. But this subject has been so thoroughly discussed in the preceding part of this work under the head of the York legend that it is unnecessary to renew the arguments. Besides St. Peter's at York, Paulinius built many other churches. Some of them we know were of stone, and the others might have been of the same material, as Bentham says, for aught that appears to the contrary. He was certainly a great patron of church architecture. Anderson makes no mention of him, although, according to his custom, he should have styled him as he does Charles Martel as right worshipful grand master. Another noted architect of a not much later period was Benedict Biscop, abbot of Wearmouth, whom the Roman Church has declared to be a saint. During the year 675, he built a church at Wearmouth and two monasteries, one at Wearmouth and one six miles distant from Jarrow. Of these, Bede is given a particular account in his history. He tells us that the abbot went over into France to engage workmen to build his church after the Roman manner, and brought many back for that purpose. The work was followed up with such vigor that within a year the church was completed and divine service performed in it. A very important fact stated by Bede is that when the church was nearly finished, Benedict sent over to France for artificers skilled in the mystery of making glass, an art hitherto unknown in Britain, who glazed the windows and taught that ability to the Saxons. We learn from this statement that it was customary with the Saxons to seek assistance from the skill of the continental artists and handcraftsmen. This will explain the true meaning of the passage in the legend of the craft, which refers to the coming of French and other Freemasons into England in the 7th century, in the time of Charles Martel, and afterwards at the supposed Assembly of York in the 10th century. It affords a proof of what has been frequently said in an earlier part of this work, that the legend of the craft, though often absurd as to dates and incorrect in many of its details, yet has throughout, in most important particulars, a really historical foundation. 
The historians of that period supply us with many proofs that churches and monasteries were erected by the Saxons of stone after the Roman manner, or that they sent abroad for architects to superintend the construction of their buildings. Edius Stephanus, who flourished at the beginning of the 8th century, and whose name has been transmitted to posterity by his life of St. Wilfred, informs us that the saint, who was also Bishop of York around the middle of the 7th century, erected many fine buildings in his locality, and thoroughly repaired the church of St. Peter of York, which had been much injured in the war between the Mercians and the Northumbrians. Edius especially refers to two churches built by Wilfred, the one at Ripon in Yorkshire and the other at Hexham in Northumberland. About the former, he says that Wilfred built the church at Ripon from the foundations to the top of polished stone, and supported it with various pillars and porches. This cut and polished stone as a material and these columns and porticos where arches could probably be now required, indicate the presence and the instruction of Roman architects, whether they came from Rome or Gaul. But of all his works, the Church of St. Andrew at Hexham seems to have been the most magnificent. Hexham was a part of the crownlands of the kings of Northumbria, and having been settled in dower or wedding gift on Queen Ethelreda by King Egfrid, a grant of it was made to Wilfred for the purpose of erecting it into an episcopal see, the place of a bishop. Wilfred began to lay the foundations of the cathedral church in the year 674. Edius speaks of it in terms of great admiration and says that there was no other building like it on that side of the Alps. He describes its deep foundations and the underground rooms, all of wonderfully polished stones, and of the building consisting of many parts above the earth, supported by various columns and many porticos, ornamented with a surprising length and height of walls, and surrounded by moldings, and having turning of passages, sometimes ascending or descending by winding stairs, so that he asserts that he had not words to explain what to this priest, taught by the Spirit of God, had planned to do. Five centuries later, in 1180, the remains of this famous church were still standing, though in a condition of decay. Richard Pryor of Hexham, who lived at that time, describes the church with still more detail. He says that the foundations were laid deep in the earth for crypts and vaults and underground chapels, and the passages which led to them were contrived with great care. The walls were of great length and height and divided into three separate stories, which were supported by square and other kinds of well-finished columns. The walls, the capitals of the columns which supported them, and the arch of the sanctuary were decorated with historical representations, images, and various figures in relief, carved in stone and painted in an agreeable variety. The body of the church was supplied with penthouses and porticos, which above and below were divided with wonderful art by partition walls and equipped with winding stairs. Within the staircases and upon them were flights of stone steps and passages leading from them, both ascending and descending, which were disposed with so much art that multitudes of people might be there and go all around the church without being perceived by anyone who was in the nave or body of the building. Many beautiful private chapels were erected with great care and workmanship in the several divisions of the porticos, in which were altars in honor of the Blessed Virgin of St. Michael the Archangel, of St. John the Baptist, and of holy apostles, martyrs, confessors, and virgins, with the proper furniture for each. Some of these, Prior Richard says, were remaining at his day and appeared like so many turrets in fortified places. A church of such grand proportions, such massive strength, and such artistic construction cannot for a moment be supposed to be built by the untrained skill of Saxon Freemasons. The stone material, the supporting arches, the intricate passage, the winding stairs all proclaim the presence of foreign architects and a continuation or a revival in England of the methods of Roman Freemasonry, nor is this at all unlikely. 
Wilfred, although a Saxon, had from an early age received his religious education in Rome. After his return to Northumberland, he had not only maintained a constant correspondence with, but had also made several visits to the imperial city, and was personally well acquainted with France. When, therefore, he began the construction of important religious houses of such magnitude, he had every facility for hiring of foreign workmen, and there can be no reason for denying that he availed himself of the opportunities which were afforded to him. Indeed, the Venerable Bede confirms that when he says that the most reverend Wilfred was the first of the English bishops who taught the churches of the English nation to the Catholic, that is the Roman mode of life. During the long period of 45 years in which he occupied the Episcopal See of York, Bishop Wilfred caused a very great number of churches and monasteries to be built. He must in that way have greatly enlarged and improved the architectural skill of his people by the bringing into the country of foreign artists. Singularly enough, neither Anderson nor his successors, Entick and Northick, in the various editions of the Book of Constitutions, thought Wilfred to be worthy of the slightest mention. Undoubtedly, we have historical evidence that Bishop Wilfred was far better entitled than that less important and less useful man, St. Alban, to have it said of him that he loved Freemasons well and cherished them much. Indeed, all that is said in the legend of the craft of the first martyr might with more likelihood be credited to Wilfred, Bishop of York. Bentham, in his history of the Cathedral Church of Ely, has said of Wilfred relying on the authority of almost the same period of Bede, of Eddius Stephanus, and of Richard the Prior of Hexham, that because of the favor and the liberal gifts bestowed upon him by the kings and the nobility of Northumberland, he rose to a degree of wealth so as to vie with princes in state and style, and was thus able to fund several rich monasteries and to build many stately edifices. Following up these great undertakings, he gave due encouragement to most skillful builders and craftsmen of every kind who were eminent in their several trades. He kept them in his service by proper rewards. As the legend of the craft says of St. Alban, he made their pay right good. Some of these workmen he obtained at Canterbury, whither they had been taken by Augustine to aid him in the construction of the churches in Kent. Eddius is distinct on this point. He says in his life of Wilfred that when he returned home from his visit to Canterbury, he brought back not only skillful singers who might instruct his choirs in the Roman method of singing, but also Freemasons and artists of almost every kind. Richard, prior of Hexham, says that he secured from Rome, Italy, and France, and other countries where he could find them, Freemasons and skillful artificers of other kinds whom he brought to England for the purpose of carrying on his works. William of Malmesbury also says that to construct the buildings that Wilfred had designed, Freemasons had been attracted from Rome by the hope of liberal rewards, and both Eddius, his biographer, and William of Malmesbury agree in declaring that he was eminent for his knowledge and skill in the science of architecture. The spirit of improvement and the skill in architecture which had been introduced into Northumberland by its bishop were not confined to his own country but through his influence were extended to the other kingdoms of the Heptarchy, the seven governments of England during the 5th to the ninth centuries. They made their way even into the northern parts of the island. Bede informs us that in the beginning of the 8th century, Nathan, king of the Picts, sent messengers to Colfred, abbot of the monastery of Wormuth, praying to have architects sent him to build the church in his nation after the Roman manner. Hence, says Bentham, it would seem that the style of architecture generally used at that age in England was called the Roman manner, and was the same that was then used at Rome and Italy and in other parts of the empire. John M. Kemble, whom 
commenting on circumstances like these in the learned introduction to his diplomatic codex of the Saxon era, has very justly said that the great advance in civilization made especially in Northumberland before the close of the 7th century proves that even though rough denizens of that inhospitable portion of our land were apt and earnest scholars. The next eminent Saxon patron of Freemasonry of whom we have any record is Albert, who in 767 became the successor of Egbert as Archbishop of York. A church built by Paulinius in the 7th century, having been much damaged by a fire and not having been sufficiently repaired, was wholly taken down by Albert, who determined to rebuild it. This he did with the assistance of two eminent architects, his disciples Onbald, who succeeded him in the See of York, and the celebrated Alcuin, who afterward introduced learning into the court of Charlemagne, of whom he became the teacher. Alcuin, in a poem on the pontiffs and saints of the Church of York, has given a full description of the rebuilding of the church, from which we may learn the degree of perfection to which architecture had then arrived. We find in that description the account of a complete and nicely finished piece of architecture, the new construction of a wonderful church, as Alcuin expresses it, consisting of a tall building supported by solid columns with arches, vaulted roofs, splendid doors and windows, porticos, galleries, and thirty altars variously ornamented. This templum, says the poem of Alcuin, was built under the orders of the master Albert by his two disciples, Onbald and Alcuin, working harmoniously and devotedly. The thieving attacks of the Danish pirates and their more lasting invasion in the latter part of the ninth century, though marked by all the cruelty of a barbarous enemy and with the destruction of the churches and monasteries and the burning of many towns and villages, must of course have halted for a time all progress in architecture. But it could have only been temporary suspension. Their occupancy lasted but twelve years, and the knowledge of the Roman method which had been acquired by the Saxon could not have been lost in that deep, brief period. Nor were all the monuments of their skill destroyed. Enough remained for models, and many of the old Freemasons must have been still living when civilization was renewed in England by the restoration of Alfred to the throne. Asser, the contemporary and the biographer of Alfred, or whoever assumed his name, admits that during the Danish rule the arts and sciences had begun to be neglected, but the wise and vigorous measures pursued by Alfred on his becoming king soon restored them to more than their former condition of prosperity. Matthew of Westminster, a Benedictine monk who lived in the 14th century, and whose story of events is valuable because it is that of a careful observer, tells us that with a genius of his own, not hitherto displayed by others, Alfred occupied himself in building edifices which were venerable and noble beyond anything that had been attempted by his predecessors, and that many Frenchmen and natives of other countries came to England, being attracted by his amiable and affable character, and by the protection and gifts which he bestowed on all strangers of worth, whether noble or low-born. Among these foreigners, we must naturally suppose that there were many architects and builders from France and Italy who came to find employment in the various works on which the king was engaged. Matthew also tells us that Alfred bestowed one-sixth of his revenues on the many artisans whom he employed and who were skillful in every kind of work on land. Florence of Worcester, a monk who wrote in the 12th century, says that among the other abilities of Alfred, he was skilled in architecture and excelled his predecessors in building and adorning his palaces, in constructing large ships for the security of his coast, and in erecting castles in convenient parts of the country. Indeed, all the chroniclers of his own and following ages concur in attributing to the great Alfred the best and wisest monarch who ever sat on the English throne. 
the revival of Saxon architecture, and the bringing anew into the kingdom of foreign architects from Italy and France, so that the connection between the Roman and the Saxon was preserved. In the last year of the ninth century, Alfred was succeeded by his eldest son, Edward, a prince who has been described as inferior to his father in learning and the love of literature, but who by his powers in war greatly extended the boundaries of his kingdom. Though not so great a patron of architecture as his father, the science did not decay during his reign. He founded or repaired some churches and monasteries and built several cities and towns which he provided with strong walls as a protection against the sudden attacks of the Danes. In 924, Edward was succeeded by his illegitimate son, Athelstan. Although the records of the old chroniclers of England speak only of a few monasteries that were founded by Athelstan, the legendary history of the craft gives to him an important character as having granted a charter for the calling of an assembly of Freemasons at the city of York. To this assembly, the legendists as well as later writers up to a very recent time have sought to trace the origin of Freemasonry in England. This subject has already been very fully discussed in our chapter on the York legend, and it will be unnecessary to renew the discussion here. Brother Mackey, since that chapter was first written, diligently examined all the charters granted by King Athelstan, copies of the originals of which are contained in the Codex Diplomaticus, published by the English Historical Society, and he failed to find among any of them any one in which there is the slightest allusion to the calling of an assembly of Freemasons at York. If such a charter ever existed, of which we have no idea, it has been lost beyond all hope of recovery. The non-appearance of the charter certainly does not prove that it never was granted, but its absence deprives the advocates of the York theory of what would be the best and most unanswerable evidence of the truth of the legend. In fact, Edgar, his nephew, who ascended the throne in 959, after the brief reigns of his father Edmund, his uncle Edred, and his brother Edwy, was a greater encourager of architecture, or, as the old historians of Freemason would have called him, a better patron of the craft than Athelstan. During his reign, the land was so seldom mixed up in strife that the early chroniclers have styled him Edgar the Pacific. Thus was he enabled to devote himself to the improvement of his kingdom and the condition of his subjects. He founded more than 40 monasteries, and among them the magnificent Abbey of Ramsey in Huntingdonshire. From a description of this abbey given in its history, which has been preserved by Gale, we are led to believe that in the reign of Edgar, the old style of building churches in the square form of basilica or Roman Hall of Justice was beginning to be given up for the cross or cruciform shape as much more symbolically suited to a Christian temple. He built also the old abbey church of Westminster, which Sir Christopher Wren says in the Parentalia was probably a good strong building after the manner of the age, not much altered from the Roman way. This way, Wren says, was with piers or round pillars, stronger than Tuscan or Doric, round-headed archers and windows, and he refers as instances of this method borrowed from the Roman to various buildings erected before the conquest of England by the Normans. Whatever may be said of the private and personal character of Edgar, and he cannot be acquitted of the charge of being free to the point of excess in his morals, as a king, he certainly sought to improve the condition of his people, to secure the comfort of his subjects, and to encourage the cultivation of the arts and sciences, among which architecture was not the least favored by him. It is hardly necessary to pursue the details of the condition of the art of building in the few remaining years of the Anglo-Saxon government. Such a plan would be proper to use in a professional history of English architecture. But enough has been said to maintain the theory of the origin and rise of Freemasonry, which is the special object of the present work. We have already shown that the system of associated workmen in the craft of building arose in the Roman colleges of artificers, of builders, or of Freemasons, call them by either name, 
that this system, with the skill that accompanied it, was introduced from Rome into Britain at the time of the real conquest of that island by Claudius, by the artisans who followed the legions and became colonists of the province, and that on the accession of the Saxons to the government of the country, though the Britons were driven to the remote parts of the island in the west, monuments of the Roman workmen remained to keep the method that the Saxons themselves were not a wholly barbarous people, and that by their rapid conversion to Christianity, the communication with Rome was renewed through the missionaries who came to them from that city, that when the monks began the construction of religious houses they sent to Italy or to Gaul for workmen who were educated in the Roman method, and that thus, by the architectural works which were accomplished under the protection of the church, the chain connecting the Freemasons of the Roman colleges with the Saxon builders remained unbroken. From the death of Edgar to the end of the Saxon government and the establishment of the Norman race upon the throne of England, though history records few great architectural achievements, nothing was absolutely lost of the skill and the methods of Freemasonry which had been acquired in the lapse of centuries and from continual communications with foreign artists. Even the linking up of the reigns of three Danish kings, of which two were very brief, produced no bad effects. So when Harold, the last Saxon monarch, was slain at the Battle of Hastings in the year 1066, and the crown passed into the possession of the Norman William, many specimens of Saxon architecture were still remaining. There is one event in the history of the Anglo-Saxons which is of too much importance to be passed over without the extended and careful notice. We allude to the establishment of guilds. These were fraternities which, as will hereafter be shown, gave form and feature to the organization of the modern Masonic lodges. This is a subject of so much interest in the present inquiry that it cannot be dismissed at the close of the investigation of a different though related topic. Its consideration must, therefore, be taken up in a separate and following chapter. And that ends chapter 51. And starting with chapter 52, we're going to step into the Anglo-Saxon guilds, which, as just stated, uh, they believe is the predecessor to our Masonic lodges. And uh, sorry for the background noise here um, as I'm folding my book up. So one other point of thought is if you haven't read the book Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett, uh, this chapter actually really ties in really well. So the whole book is about a man whose dream in life is to build a cathedral and it goes through many many years um, and the trials and tribulations of him and of a holy man and uh, it, it's just an overall it's a great story but there's he does get so much into the architecture and the style of the architecture and the building and everything that if you have read the book and then you listen to this you're like wow yeah that kind of ties in a lot with what the book was about so anyway, it's just a little plug for one of my uh, new favorite books, Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. So with that, thank you for listening as always. And uh, now that I'm not traveling so much, I'm going to try to get a little more caught up and get some more stuff published. So thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.